Why are base metals jumping at shadows when it comes to Chinese economic news? What would it take to establish a meaningful downstream process industry within Australia? And after nine years in government, why is the coalition suddenly insisting Australia develop a nuclear industry? And more importantly, what would it take to make that happen? I'm Shay Russell and welcome back to Cocktails and Commodities, the resource podcast where macro analysis meets mining insights. Make sure I'm always in your feed by giving this podcast a like and please remember that all information in today's podcast is general in nature and not financial advice. Joining me for a slightly provocative and thought-provoking discussion today is Clyde Russell, the Asia Commodities Columnist for Reuters. G'day Clyde, how are you? I'm very well, Shay. Nice to see you. Now, we last caught up at the LME Down Under dinner, and I have to say I was quite captivated with some of your opinions on things. Now, you have some absolute zinger of topics that you want to talk about today. But first and foremost, I want to talk about uh, China. We're going to start here of what uh, accidentally underpins the Australian economy, or essentially another way of putting it is Australia has hitched their economic wagon to China's horse. Let's talk about how metals are reacting to China's economic movements, because it seems right now, uh, you know, things like copper and iron ore are jumping at shadows, all depending on what tiny bit of good news or bad news um, China puts out. At the moment, if you're actually looking at the price action, particularly for iron ore, it's 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 a headline-driven market at the moment. You know, you get a, a couple of positive headlines about Beijing doing some more stimulus, and bam, you know, you add five dollars a ton to the to the iron ore price. Conversely, you get a few bad headlines. You know, the PMI falls again, uh, property sales look weak, and you know, a bit of froth comes out of the market. Uh, what I tend to do when I look at these sort of things is. What's the underlying information? What is it telling me? So there's a couple of things there. One is that China's iron ore demand has actually been fairly robust this year. It's up five, six percent from the from 2022. Um, you know they've been importing the stuff, and and they are they seem to be you know running their steel mills at reasonable rates. The other thing that I think is a, a fundamental driver is their port inventories are very low at the moment. Um, and we've actually seen them fall to multi-year lows. I think it goes back to 2016. So on that basis, you know, you can see that they have a need to continue their iron ore imports. I think if you actually were to sort of say, well, what is the outlook beyond the next couple of months is, are we actually going to see the property sector in China recover from the start of 2024? And I think that really depends on whether Beijing can actually get those stimulus measures to work. Uh, what they've done so far this year, I would, I would I hesitate to use the term half-hearted, but it's they haven't really gone full out to get that sector off the ground and running again. And I think you know there may be some realization that they're going to have to do more if they want to, you know, make the property sector strong again. And if that does happen, we'll start to see that the impact of that from you know the first quarter of next year onwards. So overall. You know, you have to say that the iron ore picture is is is, is pretty good for uh, for China, even though the Chinese economy appears to be in somewhat of an L-shaped recovery, and you know it's just sort of bouncing along the bottom, but it's not. You know, how could I put this? The, the thing about China is even China growing at three four percent is actually still. It means it consumes an incredible amount of commodities. And, you know, that's not a story that's going to disappear. So, you know, the sort of longer term trend is even as China's growth rates sink to levels more associated with a developed country, 
um, they're still going to be taking in an enormous amount of commodities. It's like Japan, but 10 times bigger. You've made an excellent point there, even growing at 3% per annum. That's still an enormous growth rate by, by Western standards, and that's still growth. Uh, one question I just wanted to come back to, something you said there, is I've been quite critical on this podcast saying that um, there is no big bang in stimulus measures coming from China to, to lift the property sector. Am I incorrect? No, I don't think you are. I think what they're doing is they're incrementally adding things. So, you know, what you've seen so far, you know, sort of uh, some monetary stimulus and so far as the banks can lower their reserve ratios, uh, you've seen them take steps to make it easier for first home buyers in certain locations, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the big step that they need to take is improve the balance sheets of the big developers, whether they do that by um, forcing them into mergers or takeovers or things like that. If I see that actually happening, then I'll sort of say, yeah, well, that, that, that's, a, that's a very positive thing. Because right now, if you actually look at how Chinese property is, is, is you know, marketed, sold, constructed, if you are wanting to buy something off the plan, then there's probably still quite a lot of demand for that in China. You're taking, as an individual, as a buyer, you put a lot of risk into the developer. That developer has to actually stay afloat, has to complete the property and has to hand it over to you. If there is a lack of confidence in developers, then people aren't going to give them their money effectively. So that's why you've seen the sort of problems in the, in, in the Chinese property sector is because the public has... Uh, lost a bit of faith, maybe quite a lot of faith, in, in the, the developers of properties. And that is sort of feeding through. So when I see uh, Beijing take real concrete steps to ensure that those developers are put on a sound financial basis, then I'll be much more confident that the property sector has turned the corner. This might be a completely unfair question because it's such an in-the-weeds topic where I'm going next. And this is the profitability of steel mills and to a less, lesser, extent, uh, lesser extent other part of copper refineries. There's been periods of time over the past couple of years where steel mills have been running on razor-thin margins uh, because I, I guess state, uh, local provinces and state governments were more interested in the production of steel and they were subsidising the market somehow. So I, I understand that China is consuming a vast amount of iron ore at the moment still, but could we say that their mills are actually running on profitable, healthy margins, or have they narrowed them down to razor thin? Well, it, 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 it is a bit of a movable feast. Topic. No, it, it is a movable feast with, with, with margins for the mills. Um, I would, I mean, the, the latest sort of data I have on that suggests that their margins are okay, but not stunning. Um, and, you know, it's enough for them to run at reasonably high capacity rates, somewhere in that late 70s, early 80% of capacity. Um, I think the, the sort of problem for, for steel mills is always, you know, like, will Beijing force them to curtail production because they don't want to see steel production uh, rising too high? I mean, there's all this talk of informal targets that they're not allowed to produce more than they did in 2022. Um, I don't actually, I think 2023 will see an increase on, on, on last year, to be quite honest, um, unless there's a massive curtailment of production in, in December, which is, is, seems unlikely. Um, I think, you know, you've also got to look at, um, you, you know, China, is, as we know, it's not a, a pure market economy. It is subject to a lot of uh, policy imperatives. And right now, the Chinese government wants growth. And an easy way to get growth is to make steel. 
Um, it's just like, you know, they do this with refining as well. If they want growth, then they issue export quotas and allow the refiners to export diesel and, and, and gasoline. And, you know, it doesn't really matter anything else that you know, they, they will act to reach policy, policy imperatives. So they want growth, they'll make sure that they get it. So I think that's kind of, you know, you've got to also keep that in the back of mind. And I think at the moment, you know, the Chinese government wants to see economic growth. So I think they'll take measures to support that. Uh, brace yourself. There's no smooth gear change for where I'm going next. Now, bring this back to Australia. We are great at digging holes. In fact, I would say we're damn near international experts at digging a big hole, putting stuff on a boat and sending it to China to be refined. How do we get in Australia to embrace the downstream process? Because we are really good at digging holes, but we don't seem to be really good at refining it, even though there is a lot of talk about making that happen. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Australia is possibly the best mining uh, performer in the world. Um, certainly when it comes to big mines, iron ore and coal, uh, even copper, um, you know, they are world class and they are operated in, in a way that is, is just simply, you know, amongst the best in the world. The question always is, is, well, how do you, if you want to capture more value and go downstream, how do you actually do that? And this is where Australia's traditionally fallen down, because there are several reasons for this. One is we don't have uh, cheap energy, we don't have cheap labor, um, and we have, you know, a relatively strict regulatory regime, especially vis-a-vis -vis some developing countries, and all of this adds to costs. So can you overcome those obstacles? Well, I think if you, you'd have to be very careful how you do it. Um, if I was sort of looking at an industry where I thought there was scope to move downstream, I would probably pick lithium because, you know, refining the lithium, getting it into battery grade material is not as labor intensive a process as, for instance, making steel. Um, and it can be done. I think the other thing is you have to do, if you really want to move downstream in Australia, you have to get more regulatory settings. What is going to actually work is we need cheap energy. So you need to get, encourage the building of a whole range of renewables and storage solutions that are going to enable cheap energy. So that's kind of the government allowing fairly large swathes of land to be you know, turned into uh, uh, solar farms with battery um, storage facilities as well, offshore wind, all that kind of stuff. But you really have to have cheap energy. That's the, the sort of Chinese superpowers. Yes, it's mainly coal fired in China, but it's cheap. So um, that would be, you know, how if you wanted to do like, uh, you know, DRI iron into steel, that's, that's the key is the cheap energy. Otherwise, your sort of scope for doing these things is much more limited. Um, if you want to, I know there's a sort of thinking in the West that China is now a strategic competitor and that we should try and move away from China as far as supply chains go. So we need to refine more things, be it lithium, be it nickel, be it copper, all those kind of things, and try to get China out. Quite frankly, that's going to be really, really difficult. And, you know, uh, you know the Labour government's sort of four billion dollar commitment to to sort of make this happen is it's not even a spit in the bucket it's a it's a grain of sand on a beach a spit in the bucket is what the americans have done with their inflation reduction act which is nothing to do with inflation at all but um <laughs> it's you know that's 
more real money, but even that is not going to be enough. If you really want to build a supply chain for critical minerals outside of China, you're talking trillions of dollars, not, not, not even hundreds of billions. You're talking trillions to, to, to make that sort of thing happen. And I can't see Western governments funding that. And I certainly can't see Western private industry funding it either. So I think a lot of this is pie in the sky. But there are, there are scope for smaller scale things where you can do certain things uh, in the downstream space that would make sense. Um, and, you know, some refining of critical minerals would, would, would definitely be there, but it would be like your small scale stuff. So lithium, rare earths, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so you've pointed out two things that are basically stopping Australia being able to embrace the downstream processes meaningfully, and that is the cost of energy and the cost of labour. Now, I don't think there's a single Australian who will, is, will volunteer to take a pay cut to make this happen. Does this mean we're going to see the rise of partnerships with basically what we term uh, friendly allies or, you know, embracing nearshoring in order to bring that supply chain or the, the downstream processing chain closer to home or closer to our watch maybe is where I'm going? Yes, I, I think if you, if you were sort of looking at that, well, if let's say we don't want to send our raw ores to China for processing there, we want to send them to a more friendly country, um, which has still got those competitive advantages of cheap labour, cheap energy and perhaps a, a slightly looser regulatory framework. Um, there are certain countries in, in, in Asia that meet those criteria, but you know, there's still a risk because you know, they might not always be your friends. Times change, things move on. Um, you know, is, is Indonesia our friend or is it a, is it a, a competitor? Is India, uh, you know, we have a, a good relationship with India currently, will that remain? You know, so you have to sort of think about those sort of things. But I think there's definitely uh, scope to do that. Uh, the other thing that you have to work out is, you know, who, who's going to pay? So, you know, you've got to attract capital. capital. Now, here's the other thing about China. It's not just that they're very good at doing the refining and the downstream processing. They have the money. So if you want to actually build a mine in Australia and you say, well, I want to build a mine and then I want to build a solution to actually process the minerals, at least to the next stage. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of money in Australia f f to do that. Um, the people who have the money are the Chinese. They're, they're happy to do it. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't really solve your problem. Uh, in some ways, it actually complicates it. Uh, so to my mind, you know, you need a whole rethink on, on how we source capital for the mining industry. Uh, I'll come back to that whole rethink of how we source capital for mining, uh, because we, right, no, we know right now it is a tough money uh, for junior explorers to raise money in. But I want to, while we're talking about uh, minerals in China, I want to talk about uranium. Now, the, uh, there is a connection here to everybody listening, I promise. Um, look, Peter Dutton's calling from the sidelines now quite loudly that you know Australia should embrace nuclear power in the lead up to decarbonisation. Now, I know we've got a thriving exploration uranium sector, um, but we don't have um, any ability right now to move towards nuclear, which would help meet these decarbonisation goals. Now, is this, again, is this a pie in the sky dream that you were talking about before? Is, can Australia realistically create a nuclear industry from scratch? Well, it can be done. Like everything, it can be done. It will be massively expensive, way more expensive than the coalition is, is, is trying to you know, tell people. Um, it will require uh, massive amounts of capital. It will require um, a, a, a massive amount of immigration of skilled people to run it. Um, Australia doesn't have nuclear engineers. It doesn't have people who've operated a nuclear power plant. And, you know, so leaving that aside, where are you going to build it? 
Nuclear power plants need water because most of them work on the basis of they're, they're cooled by water. So you need to build it somewhere close to a major city because you don't want to have too much in the way of transmission networks. Um, you need a water source um, to keep the thing cool. And can you imagine any community in Australia, even the most right-wing coalition seats in Queensland, being happy with a gigantic one gigawatt nuclear power plant being built in their their local backyard. I can't see it. Uh, if it, it would, you know, make the sort of Franklin Dam protests and the forestry wars and all those kind of things, the, the objections from the public to it would, would be absolutely massive. I really, I can only see this as, as, as uh, the coalition playing games. Um, they were in power for nine years up to 2022 um, and they didn't do a diddly squat about nuclear when they were in power. Now suddenly it's the solution to all our problems. It's just laughable. Um, they, they also like to talk about small modular reactors. Again, I mean, this is a technology that doesn't exist. The main proponents of us in the West have actually just sort of scaled back and they're not quite collapsed, but they're not really making much progress. But let's just assume that it actually works as a technology and it will be deployable sometime in the 2030s. Again, can you imagine any community in Australia wanting one of these things in their neighborhood? Oh, don't worry, we're just putting up a shed there and we'll stick a little reactor in it, it will be fine. Can you imagine the level of public opposition to that? It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a pipe dream. It's, it's a distraction. And I guess that's, I mean, I'm not a political analyst, but I guess they're playing politics and they see some kind of advantage in this. But if you're actually having a serious conversation about energy markets, you know, nuclear is not a solution in, in Australia. And it's not that I'm anti-nuclear. I actually think if you have a nuclear industry, you should keep it. I think, you know, the, the French are doing the right thing in, you know, renewing plants, building more. I think the Germans were crazy to turn theirs off. Um, it certainly, you know, forced them back into using coal and it made, you know, their energy security less um, than, you know, what it was. So it's not that I'm anti-nuclear in any shape or form. I just think if you're going to build an industry from scratch, you have to be realistic about how much that costs and where are you going to put it? Um, and these are uh, things that just, you know, wouldn't work in, in Australia at all. I un very unfairly have two follow-up questions for that, and I don't know which answer I want more first. Um, first of all, you mentioned a great thing that it's got to be near water. Now, I don't even know how much water is needed for a nuclear power plant, but you're right, nobody in Melbourne is going to suddenly put their hand up and say, yeah, I'd love to have that in my ne back next door. So can it be something that operates on seawater, or is it something that would be competing with, um, you know, we're a drought-stricken country. We can't afford to have our freshwater resources being sent to keep a nuclear power plant power station call. So does it run on seawater? And then I'll get to my follow-up question after that. Well, you can run them on seawater, but you have to desalinate it. Um, so it, it just adds to your cost. And obviously you lose some of your energy because desalination is a very energy intensive process as well. So there isn't yet, there is, I believe, in the works plans to have uh, nuclear reactors that can be cooled by seawater without desalination. But at the moment, that's not a that's not an available technology. So, no, you, you, it, it, you could use seawater, but then you add desalination. Awesome. Thank you for uh, clearing that up for me. I didn't know. Now, my second uh, follow up question to your original answer is you mentioned that there's nobody here to even run a nuclear power plant. That also means there's nobody nearby who knows how to build these things. 
where would we even start? If we really wanted to just turn out, you know, if politics turned on a dime and, yes, we're going to build the nuclear power stations because we found it and we've got the public to agree to it, who do we partner with to build these? Because we do not have the resources here to do that. Well, you, you, you can partner with the French. They actually still build nuclear power plants, although if you look at the one they're building in, in Britain at Hinkley Point, it's massively delayed, massively overpriced, and will produce the most expensive energy the UK has ever seen once it actually is finally commissioned. So, you know, yes, the French have the technology and they have the knowledge and they have the wherewithal to do it. Uh, America, they still have nuclear power plant companies, but they're not really that active in building new ones. So it would be uh, difficult. Uh, Japan is basically out of the nuclear power game, at least as far as construction goes. So the, pers the, the, the people that are, are building the most and are actually you know, doing it at quite a rate are the Chinese. So again, you know, would uh, the Australian public be happy with the idea of Chinese uh, technology, um, nuclear power plants? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there, there is anything wrong with them. Um, the Chinese nuclear industry seems to operate very safely and at a very high level. Um, and certainly their designs are actually more modern than most of the Western ones. So it's not that they're a bad technology or that they're inferior in any shape or form. They're not. But it's would you want to partner with them uh, in order to develop a nuclear power. I mean, I'm always amazed that journalists just don't really ask Peter Dutton these hard questions or Matt Canavan. It's like, where are we going to get this stuff from? You know, who's going to pay for it? You know, it's, it's unbelievable that these people actually think they can have a serious conversation about nuclear, but they just have no real idea what they're talking about. Oh, that's a really refreshing answer you've given me to my past three questions because you're right. Look, I'm pro-nuclear as well. I would love to see a nuclear industry established in Australia. Um, but you've just mentioned some roadblocks that I never even thought of previously. So thank you very much for that answer. But speaking of not asking the hard questions, you know, we talk about funding our mining sector and our miners are struggling to attract capital at the moment. Um, I know ESG obligations are actually causing problems for some banks trying to fund these projects. Uh, because miners aren't meeting certain criteria along the way. I'm not naming names. Uh, tell me, how do we fund these miners? And this, I guess, is, you know, we, we can draw this out to the energy transition. We know we need an enormous amount of metals and minerals to make this happen. But how do we make sure that our miners have the, the funding that they need in order to, you know, meet these goals that we're setting? I think that's really the very, very difficult question. I mean, like you, I was at the IMARC conference recently in Sydney, and there was a whole tent, if we want to call it that, uh, filled with junior miners basically seeking capital. And, you know, I sort of wander around and talk to them. Some of their projects are, uh, shall we say, iffy, but some of them are actually quite good. You know, they have proven up the resource. It's a mineral that's going to be needed. And yet they're just not getting any funding. So... The traditional model of funding where they raised equity and they were effectively penny stocks and they got advanced the project to a point where a much bigger fish came in and swallowed them up and then took it on and actually developed a mine. That's not really happening uh, so much anymore. It's, um, it's, it's, it's quite difficult. I mean, I was talking to, to, to one mine developer who's got a rare earths project out in western New South Wales. They are basically ready to go. The resources there, environmental approvals are there, mine plan, you know, the, the whole thing. And they're really, really struggling to get the money. And this is something that is, you know, these the, the minerals that they will produce are genuinely needed. They will, you know, not, the, the market for them is going to um, 
exist, but you can't get the money. So why won't banks lend to this? I think it's more than just uh, ESG concerns. Banks uh, will only lend when you can show them that you're going to be profitable and that you're going to make money. And therefore, you have to make an assumption about the price of the, of, of the mineral involved. The problem is for a lot of these critical energy transition minerals, the pricing is vague, opaque, and generally tied to China. And it could, you know, if, if the Chinese want to collapse the price of lithium and cobalt, they can do it tomorrow. Um, and they, and you know, you're then sort of left with, oh my goodness, you know, at these levels, my mine is not viable at all. So you'd have to sort of uh, change the way that um, the people with capital think about how what the likely returns are. Um, now, this is where it comes down to the sort of idea. Of, I think governments probably have a bigger role to play in this because you know you could actually governments could provide guarantees of price. So we're going to build out a separate supply chain that doesn't involve China. We're going to guarantee that this is the price that will be paid for each of these things. I mean, it's almost like a regulated market, like electricity prices. You know, you set a price and then that's the minimum that is that, that you know, is paid. That sort of thing. I'm not sure that, you know, I'm always cautious about advocating for more regulation. But if you want to have the outcome of people actually able to get financing, it's not working the current ways. The, you know, the junior miners are not being swallowed up by the bigger miners uh, as they get closer to actually, you know, developing and, you know, producing a mine. Uh, the banks are not able to finance because the, you know, the profitability is too uncertain. The super funds just want short-term returns. Um, and there's just simply not enough private capital uh, available to, to, to do this. And, you know, the, the traditional route of raising money on, you know, the ASX or uh, in, in Canada uh, through equity placements isn't just working either. So as far as I can see, you have a tremendous need for a whole range of things. Um, but the people who are prepared to do it upstream, i.e. holes in the ground, they're not getting the capital. You made a great comment there. Uh, the short-term returns sought by super funds um, and obviously hedge, hedge, money, um, hedge managers as well. Uh, tell me, how much is short-term thinking impacting sentiment in this sector when it comes to raising capital? I think it's the, the short-term thinking is, is now prevalent. Um, if you look at it, I mean, if you are a fund manager, and let's be honest, if you're the chief executive of a major mining company, you, your window, how far ahead you're thinking is, is quarters. It's not years. You're thinking, how do I improve the performance this quarter, next quarter, and maybe for the following two after that? Beyond that, you're not really care because, you know, the chances are you won't be in the job for that long. Um, you know, most chief executives for five years, fund managers probably much the same before they move on to something different. So they're just focused entirely on short term returns. So there's not really that pool of capital that says, OK, you know, if we're going to build a copper mine, it's going to take 15 to 20 years. But once that 15 to 20 years is there, we're going to have a, a, a really working asset. If you actually you know, sort of swing a little bit around and you look at how they developed the LNG industry, that was effectively uh, big multinational oil companies with very strong balance sheets, able to provide much of their own financing. But even they partnered with clients, uh, particularly Japanese and Korean utilities, to get purchase agreements and a little bit of equity stake into it. 
And they basically shared that load and they underpinned it with long-term sales contracts. If you want to see that sort of industry, you know, we had $200 billion invested in LNG in the past decade. And, you know, it took Australia to the biggest producer of that particular fuel in the world. Um, If you want to see something similar uh, in the mining sector, then I think that's the kind of model that you need to follow. There needs to be sort of guaranteed purchase agreements. You need to get the people who want these critical minerals um, to, 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 to pony up money and investments. So who wants them? Well, a lot of what they call the OEMs, original equipment manufacturers, so car makers and things like that. You know, it's not inconceivable that Volkswagen or Ford or whatever are going to actually have to, you know, get involved in funding this stuff because if we are really transitioning our vehicle fleet to electrics, you know, over the next 20 years, there's just simply not enough of, of, of the, a lot of metals around. And that alone will force a change of, of how things um, are done. The point is, it's not happening yet. And you have all these guys with these like, oh, we know this stuff is going to be needed and it's going to take us 10 years to build it, but we need the money now. And they're like, yeah, no, they're not getting it. What's going to cause that the change? And the reason why I ask is anyone who's been in mining knows that it's a multi-decade proposition. You know, you don't dig a hole and then suddenly find yourself exporting minerals the next day. So I understand that we're in a very short-term, you know, quarterly thinking environment, but what will drive that catalyst for change? Because you just mentioned the LNG industry that we built out of nothing and, you know, now we're a genuine, you know, major exporter of LNG. What's the kick up the arse Australia needs? Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I'll find out. I think uh, the kick needed um, is is basically the people who are going to be the end users of these products need to realize that, okay, I'm fine now, I'm fine next year, 2025, I'm probably still okay. But 2030, you know, when all my Ford F-150 trucks or my Hilux utes are electric powered, am I still fine? I don't think so. Where am I going to get this stuff? Oh, well, the government doesn't really want me to get it from China. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I want to get it from China. That gives them a lot of say in my, my production. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to make some changes. And then there'll be a scramble. And then actually, we'll probably actually find one of those things where a lot of projects that shouldn't be financed get financing because people are, are, are desperate by that point. And, you know, uh, the group of people who like to mine your pockets rather than holes in the ground, they, you know, a lot of dodgy things will happen again. Um, that happens in any boom or in any scramble. But I think, you know, we haven't quite reached that point yet. You're starting to see a lot of, particularly the car makers are starting to think, whoa, we need to do something about this. But, you know, have they got their heads around the fact that they actually need to be the providers of the capital? And then on top of that, you start to need all these people to start banging on the doors of relevant government ministers and saying, we need to speed up these processes. Let's have a rigorous environmental assessment, but let's do it in half the time. Um, and that sort of thing. I'm not saying cut corners. I'm not saying um, abandon principles and you know just say, oh, yeah, it's a free-for-all out there. Far from it. I don't want that at all. But I do know that things can be done a lot faster. Um, and that's simply a manpower thing. You know, the governments need to hire people to speed up the processes. They need to be able to do more than one application at a time. I've heard, I may be wrong on this, but uh, if you're actually looking at a state level, one of the major mining states, I'll uh, not mention it, um, 
just to be on the safe side, but they will only do two major assessments at a time. So if you've got three major projects coming up, one just sits and waits while the other two are assessed. So those sort of things need to change, but that's a government thing. And you have to really, the only way to get this is, is to keep hammering, 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 but you need, the government needs to be hammered from all sides. It needs the, the people who are going to be the, the customers and it needs the miners and it needs the bankers and it needs the investors. It needs everybody hammering them. And then you sometimes get government to actually do stuff. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing like political pressure from all sides to get things uh, moving. Now, we are going to need to draw this podcast to a close in a couple more questions yet. Um, but I want to touch on the idea of diversity. Now, I recently recorded a podcast with a guest who was very passionate about the lack of gender diversity in both mining and finance. And essentially, those two industries do cross over. Um, but, you know, you and I keep meeting great people in this industry. But tell me, does that mean that there's really only one type of person being hired in the industry and that perhaps diversity is more than just somebody in a skirt or with a different skin colour? Well, I think diversity, yes, I think you need diversity of, of gender, of race, ethnicity, if you want to put it that way. I think those are important. But I, the thing that I think organisations need um, is diversity of thinking. So if I look at the boards of major mining companies, I see some of them have you know different types of faces, people of color, um, so some have, have women directors, but they all tend to be effectively the same person. They've all had the same kind of corporate background, the same kind of education, the same kind of experiences. Yes, some are lawyers, some are accountants, but you know they're, they're all part of that, what I would call the broader club of directors. And, you know, they get into that club and then they just sort of move around and they take positions on boards. Not saying they're incompetent, not saying that they're bad people or they don't know what they're doing. Most of them are very, very smart, but they're all really much the same. There's no sort of uh, environmental activists on, on, on boards. There should be. I mean, if you had an environmental activist or a person who was, came from a, a background of understanding cultures and, and things like that, would Rio Tinto have blown up those caves? Probably not. Um, you know, so what, but I haven't actually seen them put on that sort of diversity. Uh, you know, there's, there's a sort of theory, it's, it's called the Israeli 10th man. And in the theory, it's a military thing that every time you have a, uh, a, a group, a command and control group, um, that you are one of the 10 persons on that committee or on that command center has to be a contrarian, has to just ask all the questions about what if, just go through every scenario and think about things differently. So it's a way of avoiding groupthink. And I think, quite frankly, a lot of our mining, banking um, are basically, you know, hamstrung by groupthink. And they haven't really adopted that idea. We want somebody on the board who doesn't think like us. And we want them because they don't think like us. Most organizations actually like to put people on boards or in management roles who think like them because it's just easier. And it doesn't really matter. And they think they're doing diversity because they do get some women on the board. They do get some people from different ethnic backgrounds. And I think, oh, they're box tick. Look at us. But if everybody's just thinking the same way, then you have really accomplished nothing. Um, how do we attract people who think differently to the current levels of management that we've got? Because you've made a great um, point there with the Israeli 10th man analogy. You know, who's looking in the blind spot? You know, how do you attract those individuals who are going to think differently to the mining sector? And I guess my second point here is, is this sector able to embrace that different type of thinking? 
I think there's lots of people who would quite happily take a position on a board who would be very qualified for it. Um, people, you know, who, who would have the right kind of education and, and skills background as well, but are just somewhat different thinkers. Uh, how do you get boards to approach those people? Well, it's not going to be done by the shareholders. You know, the super funds that control our major mining companies are not actually interested in having that sort of thing, even though it would be in their interests because they don't think like that. So you actually need a mold-breaking chairman or somebody to say, hang on, we actually need to do something different. The old ways are not working. What are the chances of that happening? I would say between zero and 0.01%. They <laughs> show absolutely no innovation, no uh, thought process that is going to suggest that they want to do things differently. If anything, whenever they have a problem, they tend to circle the wagons and retreat inside the club and yeah, they, you know, they might kick a few people out. Ooh, you know, you've been bad. Um, you know, somebody has to be the fall guy for this. But then the people they invite in are just basically the same people. Different face, but the same person. So there's no real diversity of thought on the boards. Uh, I imagine that many board members would be horrified to hear me talk about them like that. I will stress this is not criticism of your ability, your knowledge, your ethics or anything like that. It's just a criticism that all of you are the same. <laughs> oh, well, because of that excellent answer, I've got to follow up, a very unfair follow-up question. Uh, you made an excellent comment there about superannuation funds. Now, the last valuation, I remember the Australia superannuation fund, was like $3 trillion. Uh, now, that number, you know, give or take a few hundred billion might be not correct at the time of recording. That's an enormous number. Like that is a huge amount of money that is controlled by Australia's superannuation funds. Uh, tell me, does this, given that they've got this kind of clout in the markets, does this basically give rise to financial activism from super funds? Actually, I think it does the exact opposite. I don't see them being an activist at all. Um, you know, if you actually look at it, the, 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 occasionally the super funds will vote against a, a remuneration report especially if the company hasn't performed well, a uh, certain airline comes to mind. Um, that sort of uh, thing. But are they actually driving boards to be innovative? Are they actually driving boards to say, you know, let's look at long-term things. Uh, how are we going to, you know, maintain um, growth in this company over the long term? I don't really see any of that. It's all short-term focused. You know, I need this X, X percent return by June 30. You know, let's let let's let's do that. Um, if you look at it, you know, uh, the the major mining companies took a lot of flack for expanding their iron ore operations on the basis that they saw Chinese steel demand rising. And basically, if you actually look at it, Rio Tinto, BHP, their share prices languished from about two thousand and eleven onwards. And eventually, the sort of building chief executives that those companies had were turfed, and they were replaced by operators. And their mission was basically run the assets as efficiently as you can. And they have been tremendously successful at that. And But they're not really innovative companies anymore, other than at costs. So they innovate on driving down costs. But are they actually doing more on that sort of stuff? I'm, you know, beyond that, I'm not really sure. If you actually look at what they're doing, their, their CapEx plans are really just to replace existing production. They're not actually looking at... You know, what else do we need to do? Now, I know that they're probably discussing this in boards and, you know, there is that sort of, it's all happening behind the scenes. But if you actually look at what's happening in the public space, these are not companies that seem to be doing very much. 
Um, you know, they're, they're not really driving the energy transition and they're not saying to the, the people with the money, you know, if we want to be, if Australia wants to be the supplier of choice to the energy transition, we're going to have to start building this stuff now. And that's going to take capital and it's going to take a little bit of risk taking. Um, and those are not things that I see at all. Uh, Clyde, that was, uh, there's been some great um, answers you've given today. So thank you very much for your time. We are going to have to draw this interview to a close. However, I will not let you go without knowing this next one answer. Now, this podcast is called Cocktails and Commodities, and we've talked about a variety of commodities as well as some political angles here. But tell me, when I hopefully next bump into you at an event for a drink, what cocktail will I be buying you? Oh, well, that depends. Um, <laughs> if, we're in some place, if we're in some place tropical... I tend to go for a Long Island iced tea. I think you just got to go, you know, that's that's my go-to cocktail there. But um, if we're in a sort of more temperate climate, you can't go past a good gin and tonic. But it has to have lime, not lemon. Yes, completely agree with fresh lim uh, lime juice. A freshly squeezed lime. I've, I've been growing a lime tree in my garden for years and it's finally producing limes. So I, I'm, I'm now happy about that. Ah, yes, given the price of limes at the supermarket. Well, Clyde, look, this has been fantastic. Uh, and hopefully one day I do get a chance to buy you a gin and tonic with some fresh lime juice. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for being here on Cocktails and Commodities. Uh, your answers have been fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. So what did you think? Did you find Claude as thought-provoking as I did? And more importantly, would you like to hear from Clyde again? Because once the camera stopped rolling, he and I were joking about gold and we should do something around gold, and we decided that if we did, we'd call it the zombie apocalypse and where gold fits in. If you want to hear about that podcast, definitely let me know. But more importantly, make sure you leave your comments so we can continue on the conversation. Now, the most important thing you can do for the rest of today is to make sure you're following this podcast to not only see how many different striped shirts that I own, but also so you know what stocks are making news, which commodities are moving markets, and the company's trying to get it out of the ground. <laughs>